My name is Aram. Welcome to God's Fall. God's Fall is an original fantasy story told through an actual play Dungeon & Dragons podcast that is written, played, recorded, and produced in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, we'll be answering some of the questions you have sent to us, posted on our website, and asked over social media. Some of the questions overlapped and others were reworded, but we tried to answer as many as we could without giving away too many spoilers. But before we get started with that, I want to take a moment and update you on the Kickstarter for the God's Fall World Book. Thanks to our listeners and amazing podcast community, we have raised over $20,000 in the first week of our 30-day campaign. This means a couple of things. First, it means the God's Fall World Book is fully funded and on track to ship in January of 2017. Anyone who backs us at any level is guaranteed to get what they are funding. Second, it allowed us to uncap the $50 book level so anyone who still wants a physical copy of the God's Fall World Book can get one. And third, it means we have unlocked four of our God's Fall bonus podcasts and have already started on their production. Here's a clip from Of Love and Turtles as we dive back into Turtle Fest and drop in on Para and Zion's first date. Mid-morning, giant trumpets blast a cacophony of sound that echoes through Turtle Bay as Para and I are finishing our breakfast plums. I wash my hands in the room's washbowl and look up. All right, Para, let's go see what's going on. Does anyone else want to come? Sounding more chipper than he had last night, Doro says, Uh, that would be me. Me. And we've still got two more stretch goal podcasts to unlock. A wandering thief picks up from when Doro first left the God's Fall world and just before he stumbled into our friends over at How We Roll. A line in the sand will tell us more about the four hooded figures seen atop the Union in the player's visions who clutched Orm's stone hoop as they were blasted into what looked like the Astral Realm. And with your help, we can think even bigger. If we manage to raise $40,000, we are going to broadcast the recording of our first episode of Season 3 live. We'll set an HD 360-degree camera in the middle of our gaming table, allowing you to watch the action as you choose while running live audio from our lav mics. This will be the first step in a lot more live content from God's Fall, including Let's Plays with Doug and Steven and God's Fall Roll20 online one-shots with other podcasts and God's Fall fans. If we manage to raise $50,000, I'll be able to push a lot of my freelance work to the side and focus exclusively on God's Fall. Among many other things, this will mean a return to a weekly release schedule for the second half of Season 2, as well as a much shorter pause between the end of this season and the first episode of Season 3. Basically, it would allow me to treat God's Fall as my full-time job. And if you think you've seen what I can do, you have no idea what I can pull off when I am fully focused. 
This level of funding would also allow me to create a proper recording studio in my home, complete with rich stereo microphones and professional sound isolation, so we sound every bit as clear and crisp as if we were hanging out in your living room. I really want this to happen, but I need your help and I want to see people right now more than I want to see dollars. We have pledge levels as low as 10 bucks to get a full PDF of the 200 page Expanded God's Fall World Book. I want to see these rules in as many hands as possible so we can all create and tell stories in the five kingdoms together. We also have pledge levels at $5 and even $1 because I want to see a community come together and make something by us and for us. So if you want to get involved, head over to godsfall.com and help us out. Thank you so much. Now on with the show. Since the gods and magic are gaunish, and I know you made this world without half-breeds, between those two ideas, where do demons, abyssal, infernal creatures sit in your mind, and what about player races like tieflings, asimars, and dragonborn? Demons and other infernal creatures have never existed in the God's Fall world as far as most know, though there were whispers from the darkest shadows in the days before the world was broken, and things have certainly changed since. Similarly, tieflings and asimars don't exist, and frankly I just never liked dragonborn so I nixed them as well. But that isn't to say that we'll never see any of these races in God's Fall, as many things are about to change when we come back for the second half of Season 2. Do you have a personality for each fallen god? Baros seems quite tyrannical. Chaos seems manipulative. Are all the gods fleshed out like this? How did their personalities affect their worship in the old world? First of all, these are just such good questions. I have been blessed this episode with outstanding questions. So thank you all so much for thinking obsessively about God's Fall and for sending us a rich trove of stuff to pull from this time. Each of the fallen gods has at least a rough outline of a personality, but most are pretty concrete in my headcanon at this point. Baros's tyranny was best displayed with his slave-built union and the thousands of miles around it he claimed as his personal domain here on Earth. Ayus, god of the moon, preferred large still pools that reflected the moon and stars of the heaven on the earth below, while Sephor, god of the sun, built his temples in scorched deserts. And while both of those are thematic to their divine portfolios, they are also reflective of the gods themselves. Ayus loved to play host and would build his temples as places to lounge and indulge, while Sephor was brutal and unforgiving. To just reach the doors of his temple invoked a journey of hundreds of miles through lifeless, sun-blasted land. We've not seen many magical creatures in the God's Fall world so far, even very powerful ones that could possibly have survived the God's War, like dragons. 
What sorts of magical creatures actually managed to survive inside the Eye of the World Storm after the Gods' War? Dragons did exist in the Gods' Fall world before the Gods' War, and a few are rumored to have survived the Cataclysm, though no official account of one has been recorded since. Before the war, dragons mainly lived in two societies. The first were the ones that remained dragons all the time, and mainly associated only with others of their kind, secluded far away from the cities of man. The second were those that lived mainly in humanoid form, desiring an escape from the normal solitude of their existence among other sentient beings. The largest and strongest of their kind have not been seen since the Great War because, unlike most of the non-divine world, they were powerful enough to rally together and take on some of the lesser gods and demigods. Additionally, many found themselves bound into service by the more powerful deities. And while this meant that the majority perished, a few that chose to remain hidden among humanity still may be doing so. Hey there, my name is Kyle and I'm from Arizona. And my question is this, if each of the nations in God's Fall were playable in Civilization V, what would their attributes be? This is my favorite question, and I spent an inordinate amount of time answering it. Okay, let's start with Kadar. Ability. All food resources are doubled. Their unit is the Antitheot. All religious units can fight and defend. Missionaries are equivalent to a warrior, while great prophets fight like scouts. All religious units suppress and eliminate religion, but do not spread any religion of their own. They have a building, which is the Antitheot Temple, which replaces the normal temple and removes to religion instead of adding to. Their style of play would be militarily aggressive from the beginning and remain so throughout the game, focusing on expansion and conquest. Once they get missionaries, they would send them out continuously, looking to suppress as much religion as they could throughout the world. Ani. Ability. All naval units have plus one sight and movement, and the capital city can grow its borders twice as large as other cities. Unit, the Ironwood Galleon. It fights with the stats of a great Gallius. Building, the Great Walls of Ani. Replaces the Great Wall Wonder and can be built regardless if another Great Wall already has been. Same attributes as the Great Wall, but it does not become obsolete with the invention of gunpowder. Style of play. Ani always starts alone on an island. They never expand beyond a single city, focusing on expanding and strengthening their borders and making allies with other city-states. Brennus. Ability. All melee units start with a promotion, and all mounted units can move through hills as if it was flat level ground. Their unit is a Knight of the Citadel that replaces the original Knight. 
The Citadel replaces the stable plus 15% promotion when building mounted units in this city and grants additional promotion upon creation. Brennus would expand quickly to fill a continent, focusing early on squashing any barbarians present and then stop expanding to focus on securing its borders. Wessel. Wessel would not be a country in Civilization V. It would be a large landmass with a collection of city-states populating it. They would all pretend to work together on the surface and would backstab the shit out of each other at a moment's notice. Utea. I cannot go into Utea in any detail without revealing spoilers. I will add this one once the players have been there. Raizan. Ability. All mines provide plus one additional resource. Gold, gems, and silver luxuries can be traded away completely and still retain their happiness bonus. Unit. The Auditor. Replaces the Great Merchant, moves, and can be sent across country borders like the Great Prophet. This unit not only generates a large sum of gold when expended next to another city, but also drains the coffers of that kingdom in fees and tariffs. Building. The Vault of Raizan. A Raizan-specific world wonder, when built, it allows Raizan to gain twice as much influence via the World Council when they spend gold to influence votes. Style of Play. Raizan always begins with legendary resources and is surrounded by gold deposits. They aggressively expand towards and defend any additional mineral resources nearby. All the godlings we've met thus far have been young men and women just coming into their own, alongside manifesting their divinities, which I suspect was intentional to show how the characters are literally young gods in the making. How old is the oldest godling in the universe at this time? What's the youngest a character might be who would start manifesting a divinity? You are correct. We've only seen divinities in teenagers so far because I wanted to invoke the traditional age at which characters seem to start acquiring superpowers in comic books. Additionally, the characters are young because it drives me crazy when players start out as grizzled elderly veterans at level 1. So far, the youngest is Caitlin at 14, and technically the oldest would be Ademil at 107. But there was talk of a middle-aged gnome in northern Kadar that is the risen god of Earth, and the new god of the Astral was described as an old, blind female dwarf from Rizan. And who knows how old the arisen cactus is, or what he is, or if age even matters. In a recent tweet, you mentioned how there had been no transgender characters in God's Fall because you were worried about portraying them accurately, which got me to wondering how transgender people are considered in-universe in God's Fall. Is there or was there any sort of stigma around using magic or divinity in order to change to whatever gender you felt like? The reason I haven't had transgender characters in God's Fall yet is indeed because I was worried about portraying them fairly. Many of the gods presented themselves both as male and female for a variety of reasons, while some remained loyal to very specific identities. Both camps of dragons were completely gender fluid. The idea of living a life as male or female simply makes no sense to them whatsoever, and they would express both genders as well as mix those expressions as freely as someone might try on different clothes. 
All of that is great for creating the backdrop of a society that is more freely expressive with their sexuality, but does nothing to highlight the journey and challenges that a transgender person faces in finding their true self. In the world before the war, certain gods could be sought out and petitioned for transformation through worship, sacrifice, and prayer. Others sought out arcane magics that reshaped their flesh without the need of a divine sculptor. With the old gods dead and magic all but stricken from this world, that journey just got a whole lot harder. What sort of real name, world equivalent naming conventions could be used for which countries in universe? You know, for those of us who might want to be looking into making a lore-friendly name for a character. I pulled a lot of my naming conventions from real life, so if you dive into Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, that entire region, you'll find a lot of great names and ideas that tie in nicely with what I presented so far. What is the current standard for education in the God's Fall setting? Do any of the current countries have a mandatory schooling law set up, or is higher learning only for those with the money to afford it? What sorts of schools and institutes for learning exist in the God's Fall world? As far as our current world, the most educated are those with the easiest access to information, the wealthy and the connected. Elves and dwarves do a better job at educating most of their children, but have far less of them to deal with and more time to accomplish the task. Out of all human countries, only Kadar has a functioning public education system. But there are never enough classrooms to meet demand, so mandatory education is replaced with a lottery system to select potential students. Of all the centers of learning in what is left of the God's Fall world, the Snow Spire and the Great Library of Ani would be considered the pinnacles of magical and worldly knowledge. Others, such as the massive Seed Vault and the Anthenium of Arms and Armor in Kadar, reflect concentrated centers of learning around specific topics. Most of these centers existed before the God's War, but the Cataclysm has strengthened the public's interest in these places and their desire to acquire as much knowledge from them as they can. Are there any physical objects or elements that can block the powers of divinities? Like, for example, say Phryne's emotion manipulation powers. Yeah, you would want to block that one, wouldn't you? <laughs> Or does it just phase right through, regardless of what sorts of materials you might use? As we've seen so far, there are certain magical items that will interfere with the player's abilities, whether they are manacles or rings or protection devices, whatever. There are artifacts of the old world that will interfere. Um, how well, how long, how powerful the players can get to override these things is yet to be seen. But as far as what we can tell as of now, magic and magic alone is your only defense. Hi guys, really enjoying the show, especially now that I've caught up and I have a little time to anticipate in between episodes. My question is this. 
We know that the week is currently made up of six days, but I'm wondering if before the fall of the gods, there was a seventh day in the week, much like our Sunday, a day of worship, and once the gods left the world, the worship day was also done away with. I absolutely love that idea, first of all. It's definitely better than my idea, because my idea was just always six days a week, five weeks a year, 30 days a month. I like the perfect order. It made sense for a world handcrafted by gods, but your idea is excellent. Could you explain the mechanism by which the characters are able to improve their divinities? Is it tied into their level and they improve each time and gain a new ability? And if so, are they just given it or do they have to try and figure out what it is? Before I answer this, I wanted to mention that we got a lot of questions about how the divinities function, and we will be going into that in detail after we release the world book. We'll have a special world book mailbag where we will cover everything in much greater detail than we can in this episode. As far as each individual character, their divinities are tied to their level, though there is usually a bit of experimentation before each new ability or empowerment sticks. Doro has managed to speed this process along by insisting everyone train their divinities, but it was Phryne who first clued into the idea of combining their abilities. That's where the players have and have the potential to make the most impact. By using their divinities in conjunction with one another, they are able to accomplish feats well beyond their power and level. You mentioned in the last mailbag that you previously ran a campaign that went very badly and that you lost friends over it. What made you decide to go so big with God's Fall after that? That's a damn good question. Uh, It was a process. God's Fall was an idea that kicked around in my head for several years and eventually just got too loud that I had to do something to shut it up. I originally bought the domain with the expectation that we would have a message board, like I did with my old D&D group. There was never a plan to record or podcast anything. When the 5e rules came around, I sought out D&D podcasts in order to learn from them. I was and am an avid fan of many podcasts, but I had yet to learn about the burgeoning world of actual play podcasts. As soon as I did, I was hooked. But I was also immediately frustrated with the lack of editing in so many podcasts. Many even lack proper character introductions, simply dumping the listener into a group of people and expecting you to figure it out as you went along. So I decided to launch my first podcast at the same time I stepped behind the DM screen for the first time in over a decade. Honestly, I can't tell you what I was thinking other than my successes in other media led me to believe I could pull it off without looking like a complete fool. This next question is for Doug. What made you decide to base Doro off Monkey D. Luffy from One Piece? Quite frankly, the last couple of characters I played were definitely leaning in a more methodical direction. Three characters ago, it was definitely a spellcaster. Two ago was some form of a druid. And then the one before that was that drunken brawling monk who who I had to be very careful about my placement and and where I would attack the enemy and who I would protect and stuff like that. So I decided this time that I wanted to play something that was just going to run at something and cause problems while trying to solve them 
as fast as possible. I said to myself, what kind of character just seems to charge the problem? <laughs> and recently I had been uh, watching quite a few episodes of the infamous One Piece anime. I just, I, I love Monkey D. Luffy. I think he's a great character. He seems to accent a lot of what is really just the basic Japanese anime hero. He loves to eat, he loves his friends, and the enemy's going down. And that's, I took those types of traits and I decided to put them into Doro. Did you and Steven plan for Doro and Torvik to be best friends? Or did it just happen spontaneously like the great and powerful Dwaflin? I'm pleased to think that people think the Dwafling is powerful. No. Uh, in fact, I'd say at least 80% of what I do, hmm, 70%. 70% of what I do as Doro Not is pretty much just shoot from the hip. Let's do it. Hey, maybe this will work. I don't often plan much of what happens around and with him, uh, mainly because I just don't want to. I'd rather just run at the problem and then sneak up behind it and sneak attack it to death or something. Honestly, I feel like myself and Steven both play sort of versions of our own selves. And Steven and I get along really well. Vis-a-vis, -vis, Doro and Torvik get along, I guess. Hello, I was wondering if Michael would be able to go into some detail about how he managed to perfect those very distinct voices that he showed off a bit in the recent episode where he was playing the advisor to Phryony. Um, and thank you so much for your time. How I developed that particular voice was just, you know, I, I, I put together a few cartoonish ideas and uh, stuck with it. But I do lots of different voices, partially because I had to out of necessity. I moved up here from Oklahoma when I was 16, so my original accent was like this if you were to talk to me. But people would assume that I'm just, you know, not that intelligent despite my vocabulary. So I d developed this mid-Atlantic accent with its cruel clipped tones uh, to <laughs> fit in basically. From that, I developed a bunch of other different voices. I, my little brother and I used to practice around playing different characters. And of course, I played Dungeons and Dragons and I would play uh, uh, Vampire the Masquerade. I ran that game for several years. And so I did a number of different distinct voices. So what I would do in preparing a new accent would be to just listen. Uh, go onto YouTube, find uh, you know somebody that you like from a different country who has a different accent or a different part of the country, and just listen to them and practice repeating what they say over and over again. And um, that's how I developed it. Thank you for joining us for our Season 2 Mailbag episode. We are busy editing and recording the bonus podcasts unlocked so far and we'll be releasing them as soon as they are wrapped. If you want to know more about our upcoming schedule and news about the podcast and world book, I'm really active on Twitter at GodsFallDC. We also want to take a minute to tell you about our good friends over at BattleBards.com who have been kind enough to send us a catalog of all new sounds. They've added undead minions like zombies and skeleton hordes and the necromancy spells that summon them.
weather like the roar of a powerful wind and the crash of lightning. Enchantment spells like Hold Person and Transfiction. Even the gruff barking tone of a dwarf. So if you want your game to sound as good as God's Fall, check out BattleBards.com. And once again, before we go, if you want to help this show tell stories for months and years to come, head over to godsfall.com and support our Kickstarter. We can't thank you all enough, and we'll see you next time for more God's Fall. This show was produced and edited by Dead Ghost Productions. Find out more about us and all the shows we make at deadghostpro.com. Dot com.